I ended up brewing a pot of brewing a pot of coffee and reading until 4:30 last night. Oh, but I'm ready. <laughs> <laughs> this book in the City of God offers one of the more explicit explanations for how the cities get constituted. Loving self made the city of man, loving God made the city of God. Along the way, St. Gus does some interesting thinking about authority. I found myself musing about who gets authority and from where it derives. And that's interesting to me, not just in terms of scripture, but even more broadly. One of the most fascinating things about this book is how Augustine negotiates a Christian response to different schools of thought in his own day. So for instance, Augustine responds to the Stoics, who thought that wise people had one set of feelings while fools had another. And Augustine says, mm, actually wise people can and should have all kinds of feelings, even those that we would deem as negative, like grief. On the other hand, Augustine's tacit theodicy in this section, it does seem to vilify or at least discount the so-called negative emotions that mediate so much of the good in our relationships with the world and others. On still the other hand, I think we're on the third hand, now or the fourth, Augustine <laughs> thinks that when the city of God is fully realized, the saints will actually jettison some of their emotions. Hmm. Fear and grief will go, but desire and gladness will stay. So, we rubes read just the first half of this book 14, but as usual, there's more than enough to talk Saint about. Saint Augustine was a guy but he left us a big book so let's stop and take a look this is two cities three rooms i thought there was a lot of there's a lot of neat stuff in here especially i mean i especially like the the latter bits of the the section we carved out mm -hmm. um but it, it is really interesting like I mean, it makes sense given that he just talked about, he's just basically been saying that, um, uh, he's been saying that bodies aren't bad to get into then, like, what is their, and bodies aren't bad, soul and body are more intimately related than others like to say in his time. Um, and so it makes sense that you would then go to, like, so what is the place of the body in terms of inspiring sin? Um, but just that, the, the whole discussion and the various things that come out of that and his um, estimation um, feels really useful. Even like that, the little bit where he's like reflecting on uh, Adam particularly and like what he's doing in relation to Eve. That was really interesting to me. Yeah, maybe something basic I would like to ask you about one rube to two others, is about Augustine's use of scripture. Um, I'm interested that sometimes as I'm hearing him offer um, a warrant for some claim he's making, I find it Sparky's back. <laughs> I prefer to experience that as like a charismatic... Um, affirmation of the wisdom of what I'm saying. Spar this is how Sparky responds. <laughs> A holy hiccuping or something. <laughs> so my experience of reading Augustine uh, when he uses scripture is that sometimes I've feels to me that it's really uh, inadequate. It feels to me like he's sort of pulling a passage out of the prophets and saying, see, the prophet said, use the word gladly here. So that must mean that we can use gladly in this way and not that way. But at other times uh, in this book, for example, he uses scripture in a way that I would describe as like riffing on it. Um, where he'll like describe Paul as Christ's athlete and he just takes off and it becomes quite uh, poetic and imaginative and he's not just like pointing to a verse, 
he's rendering a whole way of being and I find that super persuasive. So yeah, I wonder how you guys are experiencing his use of scripture. It feels it feels pretty recognizable to me because I think I have experienced something similar in the sense that there there are places there are places that feel like you know this this is sort of a you know uh, uh, black and white text right like this this has this says something straightforwardly true but then you know I mean as far as sort of like there definitely seems to be and you know considering that that um, the sort of neo-reformed evangelicalism that I'm around right like there there's some well-worn Augustinian sort of ruts um, so I recognize some of those even here, um, and it's it's fascinating to me that um, that those are still recognizable. Some of some of the some of the pathways that he takes, and so you know, it feels to me like the yeah that there there's sort of like this quiet. It it just feels like there's this sort of like quiet um, voice of a particular tradition that lives behind sort of what the obvious meaning of the text is in some ways. That's more contemporary, I suppose. When when I think about um, specifically Augustine's kind of um, forays, how like is it to other people you've read in that time? Is is he doing something that's kind of weird in his time, or is it very much like what you see when you read Maximus or when you read the Gregories or Origen? Yeah, yeah. So like, uh, it, finishing up, I was finishing up the little Maximus text this week and. Um, his interlocutor asks him a question like there's a couple actually where it asks him a question about the story in Moses where the angel tells him if you don't circumcise your kid I'm going to kill you and um Hmm. and he he sort of goes off and uh in some ways not completely but but has spins this sort of really you know sort of particular type of allegory about um how there's a um a particular spiritual meaning that's meant to um, tell us something about what it means to walk in the way of Christ. So that, I mean, in some ways that's even, even more freewheeling than, um, than what I see Augustine doing. In some ways, the way, the way that he's using the Bible to give a particular definition of a word reminds me of how, I mean, Orthodox Judaism relates to the book of Genesis. Um, uh, you get uh, you get people who just that you know you have a, a, a text that you're assuming is inspired by God um, and is sort of in contains within it nothing unreliable and all truth. So like you end up looking at the use of words within that text and you take that as authoritative. Um, you you take your understanding of the word as it's used in that text as authoritative. Like I think in in Orthodox Judaism, um, every the first appearance of every word in Hebrew is supposed to be significant for that the definition of that word. Um, and like there's that it was sort of like codified in a very mystical um, way uh, in the in the in Judaism. But um, I think you see sort of something similar to that going on here where like he's looking for a way to talk about distinctions between these words that seem very similar and uh, we might not know how to relate to. So he's going to the text that he assumes is authoritative and says, well, let's look how it's used here. And that must be a reliable way to define these things. I suppose in some ways, I'm trying to think what is it that makes this kind of reading difficult for me. And I suppose that I have kind of imbibed modern criticism at some level. And so I have a just sort of native skepticism about these kinds of proofs or these kinds of arguments. And, you know, actually in biblical studies as i understand it today there's been a a kind of yes but to modern criticism yes you're on to a lot of the textual slipperiness but there's more coherence and cohesiveness to this text than you're giving it credit for um so yeah maybe i need to kind of 
rethink um, how I just sort of dismiss this sort of proof texting. Um, I wonder how much Augustine is reading like a rhetorician, uh, like somebody who just is used to reading poetry in a in a with a particular kind of analytic lens and he's just sort of bringing that here um you know i'm thinking about the way he reads virgil and the way he reads cicero in this text uh he certainly is more deferential to the scriptures much more deferential but there's a a kind of kinship i think between the ways he's approaching these various texts so uh, Andrew, you were talking in our email exchange this week about some of the ways he was drawing on authorities. I wonder if this is pinging with you in some way. Yeah, I noticed in my as he was quoting uh, Virgil and, and stuff like that, um, I, I noted sort of the verbal community. Um, so just the idea that by him drawing on these multiple sources, he doesn't want to talk to a straw man. The reason you don't straw man is because it doesn't right. It doesn't exist, right? You want to you want to address the the strongest version of your opponent. There may be times to score cheap points, but um, you you at least have to give the impression that you're dealing with you know the the strongest version of your opponent. Yeah. Speaking of dealing with the strongest version, isn't it interesting that when he's engaging Plato, he cites Virgil? So it mm. it's it's. Um, a curious move. I don't, I don't know if it's like Augustine, the lover of poetry here. Uh, who'd, I don't know why he's not citing Plato himself. Or is it because he can't read Greek? Um, and, and the Latin is just readier to hand for him. But it is strange, isn't it? That when he's like trying to prove something from Plato, he will cite some poetry from, what is it, the Aeneid or, or something like that. Uh, I wonder how much that isn't because just pulling bits out of um, Plato's dialogues is pretty difficult for doing the kind of thing that he's doing because the, you would need like to expound long stretches <laughs> of questioning before you'd actually get to any of the particular points that he's talking about. Yes. Very rarely do you get something as concise, concisely worded as what you're mm-hmm. receiving through Virgil. If I can jump in on you, he, he does that like when he deals with the little vignette about Socrates bringing Elcibiades to tears. Uh, he doesn't cite Plato's lines. He just says, so there's this, this instance where, you know, he, he brings this, moves this guy to grief and he tells a little story instead of citing him. And I suppose that's what you have to do with the dialogues. I think we have to talk about feelings. This uh, chapter or this book, the ancients apparently you know there were sort of schools of thought on what was going on when you felt something the school of thought that augustine deals with with most principally is the stoic school and their understanding of emotions deeply shapes my own and uh, that of my religious tradition the sort of stoic um, distrust of feelings and uh, privileging of rationality. Um, Augustine's dealing with that in this section. So I thought, yeah, we, we really ought to talk about emotions. I suppose we're going to want to talk about it in different ways and in our own sort of rubish ways, but I, I, um, I, I, we can't sidestep that one. So let, let's talk feelings. Let's talk about our feelings. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, I hope, I hope one of us at least has a tweed jacket to don for, for this portion of the... <laughs> the feeling i mean i was really i was really compelled all the way through that i blew through that section because i was so interested in how directly he's going against the stoicism that feels like it ends up characterizing a whole whole lot of the western tradition i mean he's wow. flying in the face of of the stoics and in, in saying things as strong as you know like i think he says this at some point it's not it's it's actually a mm-hmm. sin to Mm-hmm. Or, or to not allow the experience of certain emotions at the time that they are appropriate or something like that. Right. One of the, the, the statements that really, really uh, struck me on 569 when he says, evil is re- eradicated not by the removal of some natural substance which had accrued to the original or by the removal of any part of it, but by the healing and restoration of the original which had been corrupted and debased. And just that idea that these things right there... They're, 
there are these experiences that he's saying that are being called evil because the ancient people are saying this is coming from the body this is getting in the way of my soul and my will or whatever and so it must be bad it must be evil this must be part of the punishment um, and it is to be done away with and to just sort of so strongly assert that no these bodily experiences have a place and a purpose and are good and are natural um, and are to be attended to um, in a certain way that felt like that that really struck me at the very end of uh, chapter nine the last sentence there where he says for hardness does not necessarily imply rectitude and insensibility is not a guarantee of health yeah i didn't mm-hmm. expect it but there, there's a, a sort of validation of of bodily experience yeah so there's definitely a there's definitely a, a very cool sort of corrective that he's willing to to offer there I read a book by Martha Nussbaum called Upheavals in Thought in which she reviews the sort of Western liberal arts tradition in regard to feelings. And she noted that for the Stoics with whom Augustine's engaging, feelings were like storms. They, they happen to you. And they were upheavals. And they their fear was being overcome by these. And so, yeah, it's, I'm actually retracting some of my criticism of Augustine. Last week, I think I said that he was sort of self-protective when it came to feelings. He, he didn't want to feel some things. But here in this book, he really is saying, he's, he's opening up the, the portfolio of um, emotions in human life and saying this whole palette here this whole range of things um, is, can be uh, an appropriate response to the human condition. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas the Stoics said there were certain feelings that wise people just shouldn't feel. Fools might feel fear uh, or grief or something like that, but not wise people. And Augustine, uh, I guess, to use rhetorical language, he argues for the appropriateness of these emotions as a response to given circumstances. Yeah. I'm going to say two things. One, it's interesting that the Stoics sort of say, you know, there are certain emotions that a wise person won't have. That if, if you're going to carry the language over, then the assumption is that if you're righteous, if you're uh, you're you're just not going to experience certain things, but it's 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 the our discussion earlier about Augustine like laboring through the scriptures in order to give definitions of like gladness and fear um, and joy is in part to talk about to tr- to try like speculate about what emotions we will experience and what will be left out just because of the change of our condition, which I think is part of part of what made that section so strange to me because it seems odd to be saying to this one group of people you can't leave anything out and then to go about laboring over figuring out what will be not left out necessarily but no longer experienced in the same way the other thing i wanted to uh i wanted to bring up was just all the stuff that leads up to that passage that andrew um, talked about about hardness not necessarily implying rectitude because it's interesting to me that the, the, the what leads up to that is a whole discussion of like, I mean, it basically sounds like people that have, have ascended the, the ranks and how uh, just the, the effect of pride, essentially, and sort of the pride of life that comes with, with having achieved much, um, that this is sort of a consequence of it. Let's see here. If it has any citizens who give an appearance of controlling and in some way checking these emotions... They are so arrogant and pretentious in their irreligion that the swelling of their pride mm-hmm. increases in exact proportion as their feeling of pain decreases. Some of those people may display an empty complacency, the more monstrous for being so rare, which makes them so charmed with this achievement in themselves that they are not stirred or excited by any emotion at all, not swayed or influenced by any feelings, if so, they rather lose every shred of humanity than achieve a true tranquility. It kind of goes back to what we were talking about, I think, last time. Maybe it was the time before that, about boredom. And the, the, the condition that uh, a lot of these other traditions are imagining approximate or are, are, yeah, are, are like 
uh, the felicity that we're looking for. I mean, Augustine keeps going at it and being like, this isn't, this isn't actually good. You guys may look tranquil, but you look a lot less human. You don't actually look like what was created originally based on sort of the, our experience of it, I guess you would say. Can you say a little bit more about that? Like what, what do you see him describing? Like sketch, hmm. sketch Augustine's sketch of this person who has this faux felicity. When you when I read something like this, this little sentence, their pride increases in exact proportion as their feeling of pain decreases. Mm-hmm. And he just talks about them displaying an empty complacency. I mean, that feels like a good description of many of the many middle class people I meet. Yeah, with their designer spirituality and their yoga class and their mindfulness practice. Yeah, yeah. exactly. Yeah. You've ascended to, to uh, some high hill in your society and you act like this is an achievement of your own um, and that this is something that mm-hmm. proves that you are a, a better example of the human condition. But when I look at you, you don't actually look that human at all. You don't seem particularly moved in the way that a human is moved. He says it's not a true tranquility. Yeah, I mean, because that, that section that I quoted from, he's talking about sort of the Greek notion of apatheia. And just because I've read some some desert Christian, right, Evagrius, there just seems to be a different understanding of what that term denotes. Because I think, you know, to the extent that um, that Augustine sees it as kind of, you know, insensitivity, um, then, you know, obviously that's, that's problematic. But, um, you know, I mean, Evagrius goes so far to say is like the, the kingdom of God is apatheia, right? It, um, it is in some sense finding yourself, uh, as the ocean and, all of the passions and emotions are simply waves, right? So the ocean, in some sense, is completely immovable in relationship to these sort of waves that are moving on top of it. Uh, the mountain and the clouds that sort of move around it, right? So that's, that is sort of the, the desert monastic ideal, is, is not that, um, that you are insensitive like static um but that none of those things can actually drive you in a direction that you wouldn't go um so the example that comes to mind was um there was a there was this thing that happened early 2000s the dalai lama got together with some neuroscientists and they did something called the mind life institute um i haven't followed this for for um in the intervening years so i don't know if it's still a thing but they were doing a bunch of sort of like brain scans with lifelong meditators and stuff like that um but there was this one experiment that i remember hearing about and um basically they put this buddhist monk and he had he had him in sort of a mindfulness practice and they told him they would expose him to various stimuli and you know they had him hooked up to a brain scanner to sort of see you know what what it looked Like like you do yeah, right, right. Um but uh one of the one of the stimuli um was they they fired a gun um the, near this person. The sort of like neurological and even like physical arousal that this person experienced was in comparison to a normal person like nothing. It was completely negligible. The, he his his practice had allowed him to just sort of literally experience whatever came into his awareness with such openness that he was apparently literally ready for anything to appear in his awareness but could still retain his focus on this thing that he decided he was going to do in the moment. That is much more like what the desert christians are talking about when they when they use the term apatheia if it were just the thing that he's criticizing right this sort of yeah self-congratulatory spirituality uh, a practice that sort of allows you to feel like you've transcended something um then yeah i mean you know 
it, it would seem to be worthy of some, some ire. Probably in their time, there were a lot of people that would have, I imagine if they were exposed to one another, existing at the same time, all Christians, but choosing vastly different lifestyles. I'm sure there's some people that would have rolled their eyes at Augustine, right? Like the Augustine is a city priest. Uh, and some of the desert fathers called these people secular priests. <laughs> um, uh, there, there has to be some sort of disagreement over what these terms mean. And I'm sure for somebody who is embroiled in the, in the life of a, in civic life, as much as a bishop in, uh, ancient Rome would have been, um, the, the, the importance and as a rhetorician, right? Cause you're, you're appealing to, to emotions pretty frequently mm-hmm. in one sense. Mm-hmm. Um, that feels like that, that that's probably just a natural um, division between two strains of Christianity that sort of had a, had a parallel life, but um, were not particularly communicative with one another for obvious reasons. I just rewatched the movie The Gray, a Liam Neeson film. It's in this kind of genre of like survival movies, but I was struck that Liam Neeson's character enacts some of the contradictions that we feel today about feelings. On the on the one hand, he exhorts one of his fellow survivors to feel fear. But what what gets them through the Alaskan wilderness is saying to themselves, don't be afraid. Attempting a to finesse this thing that we don't know what to do with in our in our culture there's there's a certain level in which certain feelings are just not permitted we 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 can't we can't make space for those but on the other hand we live in a therapeutic or a post therapeutic age in which like whatever you feel is valid i feel like it is helpful to be reminded that the christian tradition is very happy with um dichotomies that remain unresolved, right? <laughs> what do you think about the um, vision of impassibility of the saints after, you know, when the when the city of God is fully realized? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, Augustine wanting to protect paradise, basically, right? Like, you know, they're, they're I mean, if, if there were grief and sadness, then that wouldn't be eternal felicity. So, you know, it it can't be there, um, or, or pain. So that can't be in paradise either, you know, either before or after. Um, and he says as much, right? Like even going so far as to talk about sort of like all animals were tame in, in the garden of Eden, just at the little psychological training that I have, there's just sort of a, a physical sensation like pain is profoundly adaptive, right? Like, uh, there are people born with, um, a sort of neurological deficiency and they can't feel pain and those folks their life expectancy is abysmal because they don't know they've been hurt may i add something really quick when you talk about emotional pain being somebody who earlier in my my christian walk was definitely on the end of like i'm just gonna do my best to not feel anything ever mm-hmm. um that severely stunted my emotional growth and ability to communicate with my wife um, with friends, I got by basically just by by just sort of like saying what was on my mind and dealing with the consequences. Um, but that didn't actually lead to uh, a mutuality in the intimacy um, in the same way because I wasn't getting good enough at seeing myself to get good at seeing other people. Um, yeah. It was just events that I was sort of moving through in a certain way as opposed to a relationship that I was entering deeper into. Yeah, and I think that's the primary, I think that should be the primary, is relationship, um, right? But we're, if we're going to use that, right? Pain is you're in relationship with your environment in such a way that I know when I'm interacting with it, such that I need to I need to find a bandage to stem this bleeding. I mean, I've I've listened to a few sort of researchers in the, in the past little while that would say that literally every emotion functions exactly like that that um even something like um a mild depression um is profoundly functional and design your body is telling you 
your environment is such that you need to slow down right now and take stock, right? Um, because one of the, one of the things that they find with depressed people, uh, they're they're far more realistic than the rest of us. Yeah, really healthy people tend to be not vastly but overly optimistic about their prospects, their their self-efficacy, like all this kind of stuff. Um, and so, you know, so folks would say that entering into a mild depression is actually uh, very functional if you can sort of use it the way that it is ideally sort of set For up. taking stock. Yeah, um, because you are being much more realistic about yourself and mm-hmm. your situation in those moments. Anxiety is similar. Anger is similar, they, right? So um, all, all of these things are very functional. And the other thing that I really feel like we should note is that emotions and sort of affects that that people feel that the ones that we call positive are actually a small subset yeah that the sort of euphoric happiness joy uh that those things and i think ethan's getting at it right like if if you're not if you're not paying attention to the full range you're living a a stunted existence because there's so Mm -hmm. much information and uh, Mm -hmm. prompting and um you know uh one of the one of the things that they talk about with anger is when you're feeling really angry, um, that's probably your sort of intuitive sense telling you, oh, there needs to be mm-hmm. a boundary here. So where I feel easier about what you're saying is as you're talking about the science of our time, the neuroscience of our time that you keep referencing really does offer us in some ways a a, a fuller account of human life. And Augustine didn't have that. So I feel most compelled by what you're saying as you're talking about Eden. Um, I feel less compelled when you hint at the the usefulness of that kind of thinking for describing new creation. Uh, we're dealing with something, to use Pauline language, that no eye has seen, no ear has heard. And so, yeah, I, that's my sort of engagement with you argumentatively. feels better to talk about Eden that way than the New Jerusalem, so to speak. Yeah. yeah. Um I I feel like I am sitting in between in the sense that I, I think that that I the 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 reference to the language of the, like something that no eye has seen, uh, nobody has heard that that feels important. Um because it is very easy to sort of be darkened by by the to have our eye darkened by a present reality um, uh, in terms of what is possible. I think, like, in some ways, Augustine is... Um, maybe he's inhibited by just the philosophical traditions that he has to speak into. Um, just like we might be, even as we're... Something is open to us in uh, in our access to a lot of the neuroscientific dialogue. Some, I think it, it closes us off to something too... I mean, I, I just think that the, the Genesis account um, is just such a, it is, it is more beautiful than it is given credit, especially when taken in contrast to other um, ancient creation myth, myths, like the maturity of the, uh, of the author of that, it, in, in addressing hum, human beings and people that are trying to learn their place in the world um, by saying, we inherited perfection and it was us that made it go bad that's pretty different from like even just the myth of prometheus in the myth of prometheus you have the initial conditions are the world is dark it's a forest it's dangerous it's cold it's not actually particularly hospitable and the gods don't care um so we have to go and prometheus goes and steals fire from the gods and suffers for it Uh, and the fact that he was willing to transgress the limits that gods had put on man um, are actually the reason why human beings should rejoice and sort of the pattern after which um, the Roman Greco world is is like forming itself. Um, they don't want to be a part of something larger because they think that the larger thing that they are born into is actually just brutal and ruthless and not actually interested in their well-being. Mm-hmm. Whereas um, in the Genesis myth, you have basically the opposite. In, on multiple levels there, you have idyllic conditions into which humanity is born it is made for them and made to sustain them uh presumably eternally at least augustine would say 
Um, and it is the transgression that is the cause for everything bad that happens thereafter as opposed to um, uh, the, the good thing that everyone should go, go toward. Um, it just feels like like in some ways the you know he talks he talks uh at the in the chapter 11 um a lot about like what what you're making yourself subject to he talks about the the soul is a bad tree um from which bad things are coming but the the language that really struck me and I think is is really important to thinking about the the importance of the 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 way he's relating to or the way that Genesis puts forward like punishment pain um uh, as this, uh, as in some ways, not just penal, but essential to our education, informing us in, I don't know, I'm, I'm thinking about Wendell Berry right now, because he, in one of his essays, uh, Dis- Discipline and Hope, he was talking about the difference between an education versus training, um, where an education requires a whole set, set of experiences that form you in certain attitudes and a relationship to a certain way of life uh, that extends far beyond uh, the four years that are required to train somebody up in some skill, and I think like the the you have sort of that dichotomy in the the Prometheus myth versus the Genesis story, where one is relating to like knowledge, um, the fire in Prometheus being sort of a representation of knowledge, and the the tree of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil obviously being talking about knowledge explicitly it's about a relationship to that where like the in the western uh, roman um, world knowledge is something that you grasp and you use to to save yourself and uh, other people uh, and there's the, the, that kind of like grasping for knowledge is explicitly uh, condemned in the genesis narrative it just feels very like like w- whether whether or not we're thinking about new creation right now it runs in between what you guys are talking about um, there's a humility uh, to the the Genesis account that uh, acknowledges the the whole I don't know life of the creature in relation to um, what they can know um, what they are capable of and what their place is uh, in relation to all these things that they have to respond to I certainly lean a bit toward Andrew in terms of like there, there's a weird part of me that, that would miss that would miss like the experience of pain. Maybe that sounds weird, but like I just to try to bring it back to the to the Augustine text a little bit. In on page five seventy two, this is chapter eleven, uh, bottom paragraph. It certainly appears somewhat paradoxical par- paradoxical that exaltation abases and humility exalts, but devout humility makes the mind subject to what is superior. Nothing is superior to God, and that is why humility exalts the mind by making it subject to God. In some ways, like what Andrew was talking about, and that all these experiences that we have that we talk about as negative are important to like actually connecting us to in our environment. I don't know, it just sort of like that idea of being humbled um, by something that you are actually interacting with. Um, feels really important to me. We could even go back to a few episodes ago where we were talking about how um, uh, there's sort of a weird desire for pain among people who, like like drug addicts or something like that, when you're talking about um, that song Hurt by Trent Reznor. Um, that when you're... I, I, it's just really hard for me to imagine... Um, and maybe that's just the weakness of my imagination, but it, it is really hard for me to imagine a world in which, like, my body um, will not desire um, to feel the resistance of the world at certain times. Um, and that that uh, somehow my I will fit into the world uh, so well that I won't experience resistance in the same way. Um, but... Isn't the thing that you would miss from the experience of pain something like what either you or Andrew, one of you two rubes, was mentioning that we learn from this, we grow from this, we adapt through this, but isn't it possible that learning and growing and adaptation could happen in other modes than through suffering? I mean, it is a gift uh, to us that we do learn through suffering. 
and I would not want to lose that gift, right? But I wouldn't mind losing the suffering. I can, uh, the fact that I can't imagine it any other way doesn't, to me, feel like a compelling account. No, I, I, I guess I'm coming back to the word Ethan used as relationship, right? And I'm thinking about this stuff that, that we've been talking about with emotions and experience. And, um, and that's what all that stuff is doing. It's placing us in relationship. Um, so, you know, I mean, my sort of mystification um, is kind of the limitations of my imagination. But like, you know, if, if there's a way to be in relationship with one another and, and with the environment that doesn't need that mediation, that, that the knowing the knowing is bi-directional and complete, um, then you, and you don't need the mediation of, of pain and anxiety. I mean, you know, I mean, if there's a way for that to happen, then you could have perpetual communion that was perfect without the need in some sense for, yeah, for those mediators that actually allow us currently to have the relationships with our environment and with others that we do. I see what you're saying. It almost sounds like what I'm saying is there's no resurrection of the body. But what I'm trying to say is that mediation and participation is a richer word, right? Participation uh, is possible without um, the blight of what we experience of participation today. I'm not. I, I think I'm not trying to get rid of mediation, although you guys are going to have to press me on this point. Um, when I say it's possible to imagine existence or learning or adaptation or growth without suffering, I'm not trying to say without the body or without mediation. And a mode of relationship, let's use that simple word, a mode of relationship is possible um, that's beyond our experience now. Saying it's beyond our experience now is like a defining trait of saying what what is the age to come what is the life to come it's beyond our experience now i don't know i think and this might be a generational thing in the in the kind of teaching that we received in christian churches in the in the uh, in the united states and particularly like the emphasis on or maybe maybe it wasn't an emphasis but maybe the the lack of a of an interest in articulating a vision uh of the future that was connected in any particular way to um, our present experience. Even a statement in um, in the same chapter, he uses the word participation in these two sentences. He says, for created gods, mm-hmm. and he's just talked about how we will be like gods, according yeah, to the yeah. psalmist. For created gods are gods not in their own true nature, but by participation in the true God. By aiming at more, a man is diminished when he elects to be self-sufficient and defects from the one who is really sufficient for him. In some ways, I feel like at least the way that I have received a lot of the images of the heavenly existence seem to be aiming at more than what we are given to participate in. Uh, If, to use Eastern language, um, deification comes through Mm -hmm. participating and attending very closely uh, to the conditions in which we are and trusting, even if we can't see it, um, that through these experiences, we will become like gods through participation. It feels like, like it, it doesn't feel particularly helpful for me, I don't know, to, to spend my, uh, my emotional energy on imagining a time when I won't, when the things that presently constitute my experience and the, the, the thing in which I am participating. I mean, certainly, as regards the, the world that we've created, there are plenty of times when I'm like, ah, wouldn't it be great if we don't have to experience the anxiety of the modern world or the, 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 the crazy speed and the weird demands that are made on us and that sort of thing. I don't know. It doesn't feel for me particularly emotionally helpful just in trying to exist in the world. Yeah, just imagine like, ah, won't it be great when I don't have to feel any kind of pain? Because again, I mean, pain... <laughs> It's just a sign of something that is off, but I want to attend to it closely uh, because I actually want to participate in the thing God created and not in visions we've created and tried to uh, reify um, in our present day. Would your statement be any different if you had chronic pain? Mm, mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good point. I think there are certain kinds of pain, for instance, that associated with exercise with sex, with hard study that I deeply appreciate 
and learn from and adapt to and so forth. But when I think about migraines or when I think about, I, I think even with like depression, that's another kind of pain. I, some people experience it as a pain. Um, I mean, maybe you would just say to me, that's still a, an occasion for stock taking. Um, hey guys, no, can, I mean, I mean, sorry, can we pause for a second? My dog is, is whimpering at me because she needs to go outside. Sure. Or Andrew and I can keep rubbing away here. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah, no, you can keep rubbing away. Oh, you want me? Yeah, you want me to keep rubbing? I can do that. <laughs> I mean, honestly, I think that that idea that there is such a thing as meaningless pain, that there is pain that is neither instructive nor just nor helpful. You know what I mean? Like that there that there actually is sort of genuinely meaningless and empty pain and suffering in some ways. I mean, that was one of the things that was one of the things that really sort of drew me to some of the authors like David Bentley Hart and Brad Jerzak that were sort of articulating a vision of universal reconciliation. Because when, when I thought about the picture of hell, right, it's, it's perpetual suffering and there's, right, it's perfectly retributive. It's endless. It's infinitely disproportionate. You know, it was, it was just one of those things where I, I just felt like, yeah, the, the, that's just sort of the eternal perpetuation of, of this, of the thing that we're all trying to escape. Yeah, and, and so I wonder, I wonder, Craig, if this, because when I read Augustine here, there, I, I there's always kind of this, um, there's always kind of my my, I always see sort of like this theodicy in the background. So in his reading of Genesis, right, like you know, God created tame animals and and uh, people that didn't feel grief or never had cause to feel grief or or pain. Um, yeah, and and so and so in paradise also, right? Like there could be no there, there would be no sadness because that would be that would be a blemish. So it, I always I always I always sort of see sort of like a theodicy in those things where, where which makes sense because Augustine's point in writing the book is in in many ways to say it wasn't Christianity's fault that Rome fell. So I I wouldn't be surprised if there's mm. this kind of through running defensiveness so to speak <laughs> i don't know if what you mean by theodicy is exactly defensiveness yeah. but something yeah. like that where he's like no god is good no it is yeah yeah right right and yeah and so you know ethan was i really appreciate mm -hmm. ethan's voice on genesis a, a moment ago uh, i feel like you know this kind of right sizing of ourselves that's taking place there yeah, that I that that I have to acknowledge is it just seems right. Uh, just just feels like an appropriate posture to take. Uh, and you know, even just sort of, you know, like that. I don't know if you, it's it was really popular for a while. This idea of three gratitudes a day um, to to try and sort of uh, um, buoy your sort of outlook and stuff like. But but sort of like um, acknowledging reality is sort of a good gift literally just helpful um and you know i think down the line right you think about environmentalism and and um uh honoring that you know there's all sorts of sort of really wonderful ramifications of sort of receiving receiving as gift the creation um yeah to the and i really feel like this i really feel like this is the difference and we've talked about this a little bit with sort of the uh, Christ as the anti-type of Caesar, right? So um, rather than wielding what it. type of what type of power is being wielded? Is it is it one that dominates or is it one that invites? Yeah, I, I, I feel like that's definitely the the dichotomy that's being drawn there, and that's what I see in sort of the two stories, right? Is it there's sort of this invitation to participate in the good creation, or there is the need to sort of dominate your little portion because if you don't dominate, you're going to be dominated, right? Yeah, and so, and so you see sort of the the relational versus the competitive um, just just right there. Um, and I think that's, you know, I think that's totally right in, in terms of how, how best we should live. Um, the question is always, for me, how, how to capture that in a disciplined way because... You know, I, I I mentioned the Creation Museum in my in one of my emails. You know, I can't go there. Like I, you know, the sort of like the picture of Avenue you hanging out with the smiling dinosaur. Like you know, I I, I shared that interview with uh, Finney Solaretter, and you know, she was talking about some of the evidence that you know, 
there's obvious evidence from from bones and stuff like that that predation and and even sort of like bone cancer were that that those things existed and were happening you know long long before there were any human beings to do anything um so um yeah how how to how to anchor what feels what feels to me intuitively and would seem to bear the fruit of something good how to anchor that in such a way that doesn't just sort of dismiss the lived reality right like because because I, I feel like that's always what i'm pushing against when when we as we've been having this discussion yeah so you know like like my pastor will say you know the 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 universe only looks 13 billion years old right because the bible tells us that it's only six thousand, and that's right that's a type of that's a type of authority that that I'm not willing to grant the text, frankly. I mean, and maybe that, maybe, maybe that's, maybe that's my sort of sinfulness yeah. that, um, that I'm not willing to, you know, and that's what, that's what the pastor has essentially told me, right? Is that, you know, I'm sort of in rebellion because I'm not sort of treating scripture as scripture in those moments. But, you know, and I, Ethan mentioned sort of, um, huh. Augustine's evil as privation, uh, notion before when he was talking about sort of, the removal of evil is not like removing some object. It's the healing of a good thing that is deficient in some way. You know, and it, and uh, I, I hadn't, I've read a little bit of Schopenhauer, but um, I hadn't read this, but somebody mentioned that Schopenhauer actually flips, uh, flips the equation. So he says not that evil is parasitic on good, but that good is parasitic on evil. Uh, and so um, uses the example of right being sated when you eat right like be feeling full and and um, that that's actually sort of parasitic on this pain of hunger that that is always sort of driving you forward um, that that is the that that sort of the 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 pain unto death is the thing that is sort of the reality and your sort of moment your your sort of momentary attempts to sustain and find joy and happiness and and being feeling sated and rested and those are those are all of the those are the anomalies uh those are the anyway um yeah i'm i'm familiar with that flipping because it, it gets reenacted a lot in western thought um although schopenhauer like has a particularly um trenchant way of putting that like the the notion that human civilization is like a little fragile, precarious, talkative society on the edge of the abyss, you know, is gets worked out in a lot of different thinkers. Mm. Uh, that that the good is is managing somehow to suck life from this massive, uh, chaotic. Um, I don't know if they would want to use the word evil, but this this massive, unmanageable, you know, dark or inhuman sort of thing um, that gets enacted a lot. But why did you bring that up? You, the the flipping of the parasitic uh, of the no evil's not parasitic on the good. Good's parasitic on the evil. Why did you bring that up? I it, it's just getting it's just getting back to just sort of that tension that I'm trying to work out. Right, we say that the creation was created good, and that there's there's some oh. kind of fallenness that that has oh. occurred. But what could that be? And so so how do I personally, right? Like I'm, I can only speak for myself, but the, the work that I do is how how do I try and honor my own experience, the the accumulated knowledge that we have, and then try and honor this other authority that is undeniably good and um, and that I live as though it is something uh, transcendentally true. Trying to hold both of those things together in a way that that honors both feels uh, incredibly difficult. And, it, you know, as you're, as you're sort of talking about, you know, um, the paradise or the, the possibility of sort of perfect relationship that sort of sc somehow screens out some of the sort of abrasive mediation that we've been talking about, you know, yeah, I, I don't know, maybe I'm just slower on the, slower mm -hmm. on the arrival, but um, maybe I'll get there. I'm working mm -hmm. towards that. I don't know. Yeah. Is there a... <laughs> Uh, is there a sense in which the affirmation that I like this evil is parasitic on good, good is parasitic on evil as a kind of way to like really find a seam in our conversation. Is it that at some point we have to make a Kierkegaardian leap here and say, 
I stand here. Like I, I stand with the in the encompassment mm-hmm. of the good that the good is primordial. Um, and there isn't really a way for me to demonstrate experientially, scientifically, conceptually, even we might want to push on Augustine on this one, even textually. It, it's like we can't like warrant this undeniably. Um, but it does affect your whole comportment toward uh, existence as how you answer that question. Um, <laughs> you're sort of casting as attention. Um, I think, well, I'm way over my head here. I am very much in Rube territory here, but I mean, Augustine's, uh, I believe in order to understand, like, I mean, I think that this is, this is where we live, where we're living in this conversation is credo ut intelligam. We, we, there's no way to really like, put this on a meter and uh say look at this look at this uh this meter here it's it's registering in the red so we know so i'm back from walking the dog it sounds like you guys are actually like going across the ground that i was actually thinking about out there in the sense that if the if evil is parasitic on the good if evil is only a perversion of the good then in some sense uh our if the the new creation is the supreme good or rather our the the consummation of our marriage to the supreme good then in a certain sense the potential for evil doesn't go away even if it never becomes a reality i think about the difference between like you know the 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 visions of the 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 good society and the perfect society that we have and the ways that we try to reify those in the world and realize them in the world and through our various economic systems and systems of reward there's something like reaching for the kingdom of God, right? And even something like, you know, when we're talking about our relationship to it, to something like pain or adversity or disappointment or uh, grief or something like that. Parents who shield their children from every form of pain, you know, are willing to bribe people to try to defend them from the, the, the consequences of an adverse environment. They're looking for something like that, right? They're desiring for their children uh, or, or even themselves to, to have um, an experience that is free of these things that doesn't, doesn't believe will be there. Or even just our relationship to knowledge. And when we try to build massive systems that can account for everything, um, sort of totalizing or totalitarian systems of, uh, of explaining the world and tracking the world even, there too we're looking for the kind of knowledge that we desire and that these people, that somebody like Augustine is imagining. It's just in both cases there's sort of a, a, there's a perverse relationship to it that is turning it into the, the sort of strange, evil beast beastly sort of thing that it, that it has become. I want to say that we might, and you guys can can push back on this, I think we might, it might be a more fruitful discussion to think about ways in which we try to realize the kingdom uh, on earth uh, in the material world at present uh, and talk about uh, the end and what we're moving toward in some sort of apophatic sense. I don't know, like the images of, of moving toward increasing int- intimacy that are in Maximus and Gregory and all that sort of thing. I think that, you know, that, that has something more of sort of the biblical picture of knowledge or the biblical relationship um, to pain and that you're moving so you're so intimately connected like knowledge isn't fragmented it is like the 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 analogy that is defining how we think about knowledge is not fact and encyclopedia or even sort of internet database it's sex Um, it's something that you intimately know and are connected to and experience and uh, sort of like it moves you and you move it moves within you and you move within it and I think too the, the the things that cause us to experience pain I just wonder if that kind of relationship to and humility before the supreme good toward which we are moving uh, inevitably would produce just a, a care like a a such a radically different relationship to the experiences we have that produce something like pain that would just sort of transfigure that experience as opposed to eliminate it. Yeah, as you bring up Maximus, I just uh, think about his repeated use of that bit from um, 1 Corinthians 15, where in the end, God will be all in all. Yeah, yeah, he uses that a couple times to talk about the redemption of everything, yeah, yeah. I think from Augustine, I'm impressed by how close he feels to us because he so individualizes and interiorizes stuff and i feel a little 
uh, drawn to him for that. I feel like he understands my feelings in the sense that he gets the ways my feelings get so warped. And uh, in that sense, I'm really pinging with him. But he also frustrates me because he is so individualized and interiorized and psychologized in his way of understanding feelings. And I think he ignores the ways that they function out in the world, amongst us, not just within us. So, yeah, that's something I'm kind of pondering as we go away from this. For me, and this is maybe something that I, I experience consistently in these conversations, even over the years before we started doing it in this particular form. Um, I think I always walk away... Um, a little more humble and a little more excited about life. Because um, the the experience of, of discussing these things and being challenged um, and laboring to express something uh, in words to somebody who I love, people who I love, um, uh, is a great is a great practice, and I find a lot of life in it, and it helps me. It gives me sort of a vision for how to participate further in the things that I want to participate in, but it's also is always humbling, um, especially now that I can hear my voice afterward and how much I ramble and say nothing at all. Yeah, and for me, I, I suppose, um, specifically from Augustine, I mean, um, yeah, I think he continues to be like more more subtle and um and nuanced i mean i suppose <laughs> you wouldn't be reading him 2000 years later if uh if he wasn't sort of a a really subtle and nuanced thinker but um you know i just was impressed with in in a lot of ways with um uh his his willingness to 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 in many ways, honor, honor the lived experience that we have. And, and um, you know, I, it's so funny to me that, that Ethan drew the, the parallel between um, sort of our, our kind of like modern narcissistic sort of vapid uh, spirituality and, and sort of the, the spirituality that Augustine sees in, in Rome is that, you know, I mean, I feel like, um, you know, that's just a sign of somebody who's paying attention to his world, who's paying attention to things around him. And um, uh, so, you know, I think I continue to be um, checked and, uh, and impressed. Um, I've been thinking about white people listening to black people or brown people. There, there is some sense in which I am absolutely baffled by black people's experience in the United States. And the only, I, this, I don't know how to say this in a non-banal way, but the, the, the language of humility feels fresh to me, of just like sitting and listening. Uh, it's a deeply humbling thing, um, but in a strange sort of way, it lifts you up too. Not in a way that sort of reinstates white supremacy, but in a way that re-equips humanity, uh, Somebody sort of turned turned my world upside down a little bit because I had always right said so I had always thought about the sort of God's eye perspective, um, and for whatever reason that had always been kind of like a panopticon, right? Like it it's just sort of from above. And it, somebody I I forget who told me this, but uh, they would say that uh, the God's eye perspective is omniperspectival. It is not purely from above. If this is if God is truly whom in whom we live and move and have our being, then. And so, you know, what you're talking about to me feels like this process of deification that in communion with somebody different from me and so different from me, uh, I am actually becoming more myself. I am moving toward that God as all in all in those moments. Hi there. That's it for this week's episode of Two Cities, Three Rubes. I'm one of the Rubes, Craig Matson, and I was joined by Ethan Holmes and Andrew Holmes. Andrew wrote the theme music for our podcast, and we're grateful for your listenership and for your sharing this pod with somebody who might be interested in the strange questions that arise from Book 14 of the City of God. St. Augustine was a guy, and as men tend to do, he died, but he left us a big book. So let's stop and take a look. This is 
two cities, three rooms.